A warm servus from Munich and welcome everyone to the Hightech Ventures podcast. Our mission at Hightech Ventures is to help turn science into a triple P dividend. After decades of focus on purely digital innovations, the wave of science-backed ventures is inevitably coming. And in order to tackle many of the world's most pressing challenges, these high-tech innovations are also highly needed. The Hightech Ventures podcast gives you the inside look at what it takes to create successful science-backed ventures. We truly want to understand the entire process from lab to IPO and hone in on the people involved, entrepreneurs, tech transfer specialists, scientists or investors, most of them working backstage relentlessly. We will talk to those getting their hands dirty, those who don't shy away from the complexity, but see the opportunity to create lasting impact based on the newest advances in science and technology. My name is Thorsten Lambertus and I'm pleased to be your host for this episode today. Hello Massimo, welcome to the Hightech Ventures podcast. How are you today? Very good, thank you. Looking forward to this conversation. Great having you. And before we dive in into our topic, uh, maybe you briefly introduce yourself to the audience and what brought you to the high tech or deep tech venture space, however you want to call it. Uh, I'm an engineer by background. I spent a lot of my professional career in other sectors, but then the first love came back and fell in love back with the deep tech. And while I was at BCG, where I was a partner managing director, I helped co-creating or creating the first practice around deep tech within BCG. And then I decided that I wanted to become an active participant into the ecosystem and uh, left BCG. I've now joined Hello Tomorrow as their chairman, where I'm helping building the community. And I'm also looking at uh, investing in the space. Very good. And I think both of us agree that uh, there's a new deep tech wave uh, is, is coming. What do you think? What is the trigger for that? Why is now the time ripe for a new type of startups, deep tech related startups? Yeah, I think uh, the interesting thing is uh, there's been a lot of talking about deep tech. When we got started about this in 2018, 19, not many people were talking about it. And now it's it's getting more momentum. But I think the reason why it is different and why we should really look at the old deep tech uh, piece is that if you want, you can consider this as the post-digital innovation wave, and you need to look at it in perspective. It, all, the old modern civilization got started in the first and second industrial revolution, and there was a lot about atoms back then. There was a lot, uh, <clears throat> a lot about uh, chemistry, and uh, there was a lot about electricity, and many of you know the, the internal combustion engine got invented back then, and so on. And this is laid the foundation of what we built. And and then uh, over time, after World War II, the, we started this kind of digital wave. It started with the creation of the personal computer and the big research labs uh, in the U.S. mostly, and they prepared the ground for the personal computer. And then there was a third wave that came with the venture capital and the Silicon Valley model. But those two waves were very much built around the bits and, and the digital side. And now the, the circle is closing, basically. And we are entering a wave of innovation, which is made by atoms and bits. And as a good friend of mine says, it's made out of atom bits and jowl. Um, ultimately, and, and I think this is really the reason why this wave is different and it's starting now because we can really start operate at the atomic level and we're changing not only the data side, but we're really changing also the atom side of things. And that's why this is so exciting. Okay, so atoms and bits. I'm wondering because I get the question quite often and probably you as well. So what exactly is deep tech? How do we define mm -hmm. that? So when you would try to define that space, how would you do it? I, I thank you for asking this question because it's something that I'm really passionate about. And, uh, you know, when we got started talking about deep tech, uh, we were really lo looking at talking about uh, technologies. Uh, but ultimately, uh, researching these, we realized that deep tech is ultimately an approach toward innovation is not about a single technology. And this is the same kind of journey that uh, Clay Christensen went through when he started talking about disruption. He was talking about disruptive technologies, but then he realized that the technology th themselves were not disruptive. It's the use that you do of technology that generate disruption. And the same is true for deep tech. There are not deep 
technologies. As such, there is an approach toward innovation, which we call deep tech. And uh, <clears throat> the characteristic of this approach toward innovation is that if you want, it allows fundamental innovation to become the default. We're used to innovation, which is more in the range of incremental innovation with 10% innovation. And with deep tech, you can achieve fundamental innovation. So 10x innovation, I wouldn't say as a default, but it makes it way more accessible. And this is what for me deep tech is, a different approach toward innovation. And if you would now describe this new type of deep tech ventures, what are the basic characteristics of, of those companies and startups? Uh, I would say for sure they're mostly, not only, but mostly dealing with physical products. That's something that we have seen across. Then they always operate at the intersection of technologies and uh, this convergence of technology is a very, very important part. Um, and what we're seeing is not only that they are operating at the intersection of technologies, but they are very much problem oriented. Very often they go through a journey, so they start from a technology, but the good one, the successful one, are the one that really manage the journey into becoming problem oriented. And really, this is the problem that we're trying to solve. And then because of that, you bring together all the different technologies that are needed um, to be able to solve the problem. So this is the second characteristic. The third characteristics. <clears throat> is that um, they are really part of a broader ecosystem. So it's it's not only the, the days in which you had two, two person in a garage just really coming up with a great innovation or a bunch of students in the dorm writing new code and creating a new company, you cannot do that when you start dealing with atoms and bits. Um, and therefore, you need the broader ecosystem. You need the university, you need companies, you need lab, uh, you need the physical infrastructure to scale. So it's it's a very, very different game. I think those are the, the main characteristics that I, I would see in this space. It's very interesting that you say that deep tech ventures are problem-oriented. And when I, with my background in research organization, look at how deep tech ventures are primarily formed, uh, not only in Europe, but especially in Europe, it's more often like the typical tech push of way, right? There's an invention and uh, at a certain majority, and now we need to look how to commercialize it. And if we don't find a corporate partner, maybe a startup is a good way of doing it. But it seems like this is not the kind of deep tech venture that you envision that is successful in the market. Absolutely. And, and that's why I emphasize the successful one are the one that manage this journey. I think it's totally normal that you are a PhD student and you're working and been working with this amazing technology and you try to, to, to really develop it further and create a company around it. But if you are uh, want to be successful, you really need to identify the problem that you're trying to solve. And you might even be willing to drop your technology to, if you find a better one that allows you to solve that problem. A good example, because you know it sounds a little bit theoretical, but there was a very good interview with Alex Lorestani, the CEO of Gelto, where he was talking about they were going through these and then he would say, you know, a technology is not a product, the product is a product. And uh, seems like, yeah, of course, but when you are there and you're working with technology, you think that your technology is a product. And he managed really to understand that this was not where he needed to go and really look at, okay, how can I produce collagen in this case uh, using precision fermentation? And uh, this became his product and really just creating a, a replacement for, for collagen. So this is, and, and <clears throat> there are many other examples of, of, of these uh, and, and, but it's not easy. Uh, you know, I have this discussion very often with the, one of the co-authors of the report where you say, yeah, but they are starting. You say, yeah, that's where they're starting. You know, the successful one are the one that really manage this transition. Okay, talking, uh, talking about the report, uh, you just published the deep tech investment paradox, a call to redesign the investor model. Uh, so it seems it's not only maybe, this is my perspective, some research organizations are not prepared for the new game. Maybe some founders' perception of how to build these companies might be wrong, but also the investor model needs to fit to deep tech ventures. Maybe you could uh, give us a, a, an overview, your key insights when writing the report about the investor model, how it looks like today and how it should look like in the future in order to be able to invest into deep tech. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're going there because you know, we might have all the best uh, deep tech startups of this world and the best science, but if we don't have the right funding mechanism, we're going to lose and miss a lot of opportunities 
which, uh, uh, quite frankly, it's not a matter of economical impact. We cannot afford to miss because of what's going on in terms of climate change and sustainability. So one of the key to get there, and there are multiple studies saying that, you know, we need new technologies to get to where we want to get by 2030, 40, 50, depending on, on how you take it. So we need this technology to change it. And, and we need over time to really also fundamentally change the economic and industrial tissue and make it sustainable. And, and deep tech or, or the bits and the atoms are a really very important part of that. That said, how do we finance it and how do we get there? And, and it's, uh, it's a little bit ironic. And this is one of the reasons why we wrote, uh, we called the, the report investor paradox is that ultimately uh, the investor world needs to go back to the roots. Uh, to their roots. And, uh, you know, this big wave uh, of venture capital started in, in the 70s, 80s, when there was a shift in regulation in the US um, that allowed a pension fund to start investing in venture capital. But the, the, the really pioneer in, in the space were working with art tech or deep tech problem from the very beginning. It was all the world of semiconductors, personal computer, and the like. And in 1980, they moved to Genentech uh, and created the, the first uh, uh, biotech company, which was created by a venture capitalist. The, the, you know, there was none, and it was really a venture capitalist called the scientists and say, this technology has great potential, should become uh, a, a, a company. So the, the paradox is that over time, uh, the old investor world has drifted away and has been taken by this digital wave. And ultimately, the old investor model has almost fossilized along two very clear paths toward in, uh, uh, inv investment uh, with two different blueprints. You have a blueprint which is built around low technology risk and high market risk. Uh, which is the one around ICT. So is the old digital world software as a service. We're going to get it coded, but the question is, do I get the market for it? Is the famous product market fit that people talk about. And the other extreme is the extreme in which you have low um, market uh, risk, but high technology risk, which is the old biotech place where if you find a drug candidate, you have hit the jackpot and you have no market risk because there is there is a regulatory risk, there is, but the, the, the biggest risk is the technology one. And you basically have these two extreme of the spectrum and, uh, and everything which is in between, uh, you, the, 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 the in, investor don't know how, how to deal with it. And, and we've been seeing it. So this is one of the pieces, but this is actually where uh, the, the venture capital world got started. So it needs to go back um, to where it uh, got started. And there are ways to do that. And do you think, uh, I, I'm wondering what, what is the reason for that development? Is it because still the low tech area is so attractive for investors because it is highly scalable you need less upfront investment and also maybe later less investment to to scale it is it just because uh, for some reason since there has been this digital wave in the in the past decades that the vcs and the partners and those raising the new funds and leading the big venture capital fund are just more knowledgeable in that field why is that that we lost this nature of deep tech venture capital because it became an asset management, uh, an asset class, uh, ultimately, and, uh, and, and a lot of math got applied and it really became a game of risk minimization instead, instead of risk mitigation. So people were, some were playing the big number. So you say, I'm going to do a certain set of investment and one is going to return the fund and you have these dynamics. And then this blueprint got created that uh, are, uh, we're working. So why not, not using them? And then you have these specialized kind of pieces. And, and ultimately the, the biotech world, there was a lot of knowledge. And, and if you go in that space, there are a lot of people that really understand the science behind it. Uh, but on the ICT side, there were people mostly understanding the, the, the business side of it. You didn't need really a science background. And, and then it was working. Why, why changing it? But if this new class of, of investment comes up, uh, you know, if we're talking about investing in nuclear fusion, um, and then we start talking about, shall we go for laser confinement or magnetic confinement of the plasma? 
it's not not something that everybody every investor can deal with so it, it the barrier to to really understanding the, the problem are much higher and really also understanding when uh, you know you have multiple types of risk and out of all the conversation that we've had one of the things that we heard from everybody is that none of the successful investor in deep tech invest in science risk everybody told us science risk is something that needs to be addressed in the university and what I mean with science risk is really the discovery. It doesn't mean that it works in principle, that there is a science behind it. Right. Um, so nobody will invest and say, I want you to do this discovery. That's what university and what the government should be doing. But then it really becomes of how do I translate this science into a final product? And this is the journey that they need to do. And this requires a very different set of capabilities also from the venture side, because there is a much more uh, hands-on approach that you need to have with the ventures that you're dealing with, which again, it goes back to the roots because I don't remember if it was Mr. Kleiner or Mr. Perkins, one of the two of, of, of the firm, but he, he had this habit of going, I think it was every Thursday, he was sitting at a desk at the companies where they were investing and going through the numbers, reviewing the books and really making sure that everything was working on. And I think we need to go um, back uh, more. And, and I'm seeing this in my interaction with a lot of startups. You can really jointly create value. And I think this is a very important uh, point. You said that uh, you know deep tech might require more investment uh, down the line. What we have seen out of the analysis is this is a bit of a myth, a part of this narrative, how it is difficult to invest in deep tech. But what we have seen is that, yes, there is more investment upfront, but ultimately when you scale, um, you can generate revenue more quickly if you're good and you have different sources of uh, financing. And what we've seen is if you look at accumulated investment, the money that you need to put to really conquer the market literally with a software product and so on is actually more than what you need to put into a deep tech investment. So this is a little bit of, of, of the myth um, that we've seen there. But the, the really important thing is, and I think this is one of the biggest differences with the standard venture capital world, is that a lot of value creation is in the early phases. Uh, this is where you really create the value. And, and this is also why a different model is required because all the value creation is made there, uh, but then you need to go with the different rounds. Otherwise, you get washed out and you don't basically, uh, you cannot cash on the value that you have created in working with uh, with the startups. And this is something that I've been seeing in a lot of the interaction that I've been having is really, you can very often, some of these startups don't realize the potential of uh, the work and, and, and of the product that they have. You really need to work with them, help them craft a narrative. And another point which is difficult in investing in deep tech is that the, the, you know, a PhD coming out of university, which is used to detail his thesis to the last bullet point and really making sure everything is 110% right before he can really write about it and get them to speak to a very different world like the investor world and get the two to understand each other and really see the potential in each other is something that is gonna require some time. I'm sure that over time it's gonna happen, but right now I have a lot of company, I've been in touch and I say, guys, you have a great product, but you are not investable right now um, because you have the wrong number, you have the wrong approach, you're telling the story, right? It's not clear what your product is. Um, so helping them, but this is where, as an investor, you can create a lot of value. Yeah, and I fully agree. And I think, um, of course, investors are not not too lazy. Uh, but but at the end of the day, there's maybe easier opportunities to invest in than really to go into research organizations, into the startups that you were referring to right now, very early stage in invention, high potential, but the people doing it are just not able to articulate what is the market opportunity exactly, how to do a good go-to-market approach and stuff like that. But I see that there's a lot of value that could be added potentially by investors to go there and help them to carve that potential out and then, then be able to invest in a very early stage into a very po high potential company. Um, I, I fully agree on that. And I'm also um, wondering now when I listen to you, first of all, it seems like 
the teams that are running venture capital funds need to be composed differently because they need to deal also with this technical side. Uh, then it seems like because this makes a lot of sense that you need to have more upfront investment. So maybe ticket sizes in the early stages have to be higher, although there's not that much difference than in later stages. Um, is, is both correct, uh, both uh, summarized correctly? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Let me start with, uh, with the ticket size. Uh, this is absolutely 100% true and we're seeing this. So, you know, a seat round here is more in the, in the millions um, and, and you really need more money um, to be able to do that. So this is definitely sure. And, and this means also that the size uh, of uh, the funds needs to be bigger. And you really need the understanding of the technology to be able to do so. And this is what we're seeing. And if you look at the, you know, if you look at Breakthrough Energy Venture, I think 50% of their staff has a PhD. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you really need to understand what is behind it. And you really need to look at it. And, and another consequence of the bigger ticket sizes is that it's very difficult to play the number game here. It's not that you say, okay, I'm going to do 20 investment and one is going to work. So you need to really recalibrate a little bit because if you have retired, um, if you manage to invest in where there is no science risk and if you manage to mitigate the engineering risk, very often, given that those technologies are really disruptive, then they are, sorry, they're very disruptive and uh, um, they, they really create new markets. So there, there is not a market uh, risk. There is always market risk, but the potential is huge. Um, so it, it really requires a different mindset when, when you go through that and you really need to rethink instead of, you know, there is these uh, uh, phrases, spray and pray. It right. doesn't work with deep tech. You cannot do spray and pray or let's say leveraging uh, solely the, 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 the power law of distributed returns. You really need to carefully select. And what I've been seeing is that the success rate can be really moved up a lot, uh, but you need to really find the right team with the right idea and, uh, and, and help them. Uh, so, you know, finding the right team with the right idea is no different from the digital part, but on the digital side, it's easier to, to see uh, the right team and the right idea. And in deep tech, you need to, to dig a little bit deeper um, and understand the potential which is there. Okay, so uh, we talked about fund size. Uh, this seems to be important, uh, as, as you said, but then also probably a fund length. Um, we, we both know that it might take, or what does your data say? Does it take longer to take a deep tech company to IPO? I can imagine due to R&D that is involved, it might take longer. Um, and this has also, of course, some consequences maybe for fund life, right? Yeah, we went with this thesis into the research, to be sincere. And uh, I, I was thinking that we're going to find out that it has to be longer. The truth is it can be longer and it helps, but it's not necessary. It's uh, uh, This is not re really what came out of the, the, the discussion. And there are multiple reasons for that. Um, the first one is that probably if you consider the total life of the um, venture, uh, then it's probably true. But what people forget is that very often you have teams that are coming out of university which have been working on this technology or this product for five years uh, as a PhD and postdoc. And then they usually manage to have a couple of years on grants and so on. So they have already five years to start with where a normal digital startup would start in two weeks. They have five years. Uh, and then if you add to these the usual cycle, then you get to a much longer time. But from an investment point of view, from the moment they are investable, you don't necessarily need that longer. There are instances if you're starting a company from scratch, it might take longer. Yes but it's not necessary. And in terms of funds, uh, what I heard, and I've been asking this question quite a bit, and uh, actually I got a lot of both VCs and LPs telling me, you know, you can do it with 10. It's not that it's impossible. And what multiple VCs told me is, Massimo, the biggest problem is not time, is your returns. If you are having great returns, 
and you're going to NLP and you tell them, let's wait one year longer and you're going to get 50% more return, everybody's going to come with you. Nobody's going to say, I want my money back now. Um, and I think this is the core point. If you're showing that you have a track record and if this specific investment require more time, there are different ways of doing it and people are doing and going with it. Um, so more time, yes, helps, definitely. Um, but is it a necessity? No. Okay, talking about returns, do you have data on that? Comparing the returns of deep tech funds as opposed to maybe more uh, ICT funds? It's uh, it's way too early to do that. So we, right. we really looked hard for the report um, and we have some number, but those are really numbers in terms of exits and not for the fund, because imagine, you know, a fund, most of these funds are still open. There are very few. The one that managed to do it, and if you look what Lux has been doing or DCVC, their return or flagship pioneer, and I consider flagship pioneering as a deep tech fund. In their approach, they're more specialized on, on life science, but they have, I think, 9x. So everything that we have seen, you can do it. It's, it's not a guarantee like everything. It's not because you're a deep tech fund, you are more profitable. But what we're seeing is that it is possible to be very profitable and heavy, having very good returns also as a deep tech fund. What is true is what one uh, investor told us uh, is that, you know, the big difference when it comes to deep tech is that uh, deep tech investing is a labor of love. Uh, it's 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 not that you just sign the check. I mean, it's not true also for digital, but for deep tech, you really need to, you, you know, roll uh, your sleeves up and, and, and work with it, engage and help or understand the science and, and so on. Um, and, and, and I think this is probably the, the, the real, one of the biggest differences. Okay. Understood. And so for the new investor model, also in your report, you also briefly touch upon the LP side. So the limited partners who is investing into, into that model right mm -hmm. now, or should be investing into, into deep tech funds. Yeah. And it took us <laughs> three, four months in the research to come to the conclusion that was obvious to many that actually, if you want to change the investment world, you need to start with the LPs because they are really at the top of, of the food chain. So yeah. the VCs are going are gonna to do what the LP are, are telling them. Um, so if they're not going to get money from the LP, it's going to be difficult. And that's where we started. There are a couple of enlightened, I would call them LPs that are really showing the way. Uh, Temasek is one example. Uh, but you're seeing also in, in the Canadian funds are doing a lot of these, both the, the Canadian uh, pension plan and, and also the Ontario teacher uh, is doing some really good work with thematic investing. But they are all building teams of PhDs in their ranks to be able to understand. And the reason why they're doing it, it's quite interesting because it's really a, an SDG uh, a reason. They want the return, but they also realize that, uh, you know, with all this talking about SDGs and ESG, uh, deep tech is the instrument to push the SDG forward uh, as an investor. Um, so this is really uh, what we're seeing, but it, it's not that you start saying, I start allocating more money um, to these. It's just that really they needed to build the capabilities and I've been talking with Temasek and they are hiring PhDs, people that led R&D in companies to help with their investment. And they're really serious about it. And the other thing that you saw, which is for me a weak signal about how this is really the next wave of investment, we're seeing more and more direct investment of these sovereign wealth fund or pension fund into companies not at the series a round not in the seed phase but already even in series b or big series b or series c they go direct and this is always a sign that okay there is some sub some substance it's not only uh, you know fashionable to invest but there is some substance in there yeah and in addition to that there's probably some individuals paving the way as well uh like bill gates with breakthrough energy ventures or Kosla, right uh, and yeah. it, you 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 had a very nice overview and you have a nice overview in your report about all the deep tech investors right um investors right now and it's again a closed circle it's not that many people and vcs doing it uh but hopefully the the number of vcs and funds are will grow um in the next couple of years yeah, absolutely. Although I think there is a big asymmetry as with everything VC, but 
there is really a big asymmetry between the US and Europe when it comes to VC in general, but when it comes to deep tech, um, the difference is really big because if you look at, at the people uh, that we have uh, we have anal analyzed in uh, in the in uh, in the report, um, all the big one the reference names are all in the U.S. There are a few here and there in Europe, but to be sincere, over the past few months there has been more talking about doing deep tech in Europe as an investment that we did being deep tech in the, in investing. There are a few funds that are doing it. But the vast majority, absolutely not, if you ask mm. me. And so they are missing out the big opportunity, the wave that is coming. Yeah, although I have to say on the other side, uh, now talking out of personal experience, uh, as another investor told me, say, you know, Massimo, in the US, the deep tech entrepreneur grow on trees. In Europe, they don't. Um, it's uh, the, the, the cultural barrier to become an entrepreneur if you have started a career as a PhD is much bigger in Europe than it is in the US. It's changing. Um, we're seeing this particularly in France and in the UK, um, but in many other places it's just, I decided to go into research. That's not what I want to do. Um, and and it's, it's really, and the one who tried to do it, they don't have the infrastructure I'm seeing a lot of companies with huge potential that are having are struggling to get funding uh, because people simply don't understand. And this goes back to my previous point is that that you really need to see the value in what it is. I, I had one company where I was talking to, they're now just about to close a deal. But when I started talking to them, I said, so you have the, the first VC that I'm, or investor uh, that I'm talking to understand what I'm talking about. Most people really have to start from scratch and explain what we do. And uh, I've heard many times this story. So I think, but this is going to change over time. I think it's normal. It's part of the transition. I hope that this is going to change. Yeah, hopefully uh, it's it's it, it is highly needed. And now I'm I think there's one player of the ecosystem we haven't talked about, and this is because also many PhDs in Europe at least they're still longing for this corporate career. Uh, there's this big corporate they want to go into mm -hmm. and, and work for the R and D department uh, or whatever role. Um, what's the role of corporates in the deep tech play? Uh, I would differentiate between the potential role and the real role because <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, I think you know the biggest difference. Uh, one of the biggest differences from a corporate point of view is that, unlike with the digital model, where digital startup were mostly coming to eat your lunch um, and and take it away. Uh, with deep tech, with atoms and bits corporate, you know, scaling something physical is very different than scaling a software. You don't need just a little bit more space on, uh, on, on, in the cloud. Uh, you really need facilities, you need uh, infrastructure and so on. So there is theoretically and potentially a very complementary uh, environment. And in an ideal world, um, you would have the innovation force of a startup coming up with new solutions to problem, new product, and you have the strength of a company that allows you to get access to market and uh, go to market production, infrastructure and everything. This is the ideal world. The reality is that instead of bringing together the strengths of the two, you end up with the fragility of the startup and the bureaucracy of corporate that usually kills the endeavor. Um, and, and, and really, at BCG, we, we did some, some studies about that. And one of the biggest source of frustration is really the different uh, clock time that the two entities have. Uh, you know, what is a week for a startup is at least a month, if not a couple of months for a corporate. And uh, when, when you're running short on cash, every day counts and you really want to get things through. So I think they are still finding their way. And personally, I think that there are ways of doing it. And personally, I think that uh, uh, down the line, there is going to be a lot of uh, biopharma-like uh, setup where this becomes the norm. And situation like the BioNTech, Pfizer, where people today can really easily relate to. People think that Pfizer 
and BioNTech came into a partnership because of COVID, but this was not the case. They had the partnership before, and this is the way I envision the world to be. You have super breakthrough innovation happening, and then uh, agreements uh, where the company worked together on distribution, regulatory, and, and all of those things. So this is the ideal world, but let's not forget, pharma, they started with biotech in 1980, and it took them 40 years to get there. So I don't think we have 40 years, but it will take a few years before company learn to, to really play this game, which is a fundamentally different one. Yes, although I, I think there is, they are rare. There is some corporates worldwide who do understand venture capital, and especially in later rounds for deep tech companies, they are the ones who really have the deep pockets and also able to contribute with other factors to the success uh, of the startup. But uh, as you say, there's, said, there's a theory of how those two entities could interact in a perfect way but uh, in many cases this is still theory yeah there there are always good exception but one of the things that we theorize in the uh in in the report is that actually in my view many corporates will be better served in investing a strategic anchor investor in existing funds um, and getting exposed to multiple uh, instead of creating their own corporate venture capital that is operating on a budget and not it's it, it's a venture capital which is not venture uh, because it operates on a budget. Uh, I, I think they will be better served uh, doing this kind of uh, deals. There are a few very good exceptions, so it, it's true. Uh, if I think what BioDeep is doing, I think it's a good example uh, going this direction, but there are many that are not getting anywhere. Which comes back to the point that we need to have a certain investor model in order to suit this kind of startups that yes, we're talking yes. about. Wonderful. Yes. Now, coming back to you as an individual, when you look at the landscape, what are the technologies? And you also touched upon that, that it's for most deep tech ventures, those that, that are successful, it's a conversion mm -hmm. of different te technologies. What fields excite you the most? And where do you feel like deep tech can really have a huge impact in the future? I would say there, are, from my side, there are two avenues that are very much unexplored because I could talk about, you know, robotics, automation. This is that; those are all things that we've been looking at, and and also AI and machine learning. This is going to continue to develop. Uh, the the two areas where I'm really really excited. One is very dear to my heart, and I even wrote a whole report about it, which is nature co-design. Uh, and the other one is quantum. Um, on, on nature co-design, it's something that, uh, it's a term that we created um, because I like to look at uh, these from not only the synthetic biology side of things, but I also li like to look at nanotech and advanced materials. And the whole idea is that, that for the very first time in the history of humanity, we're in a position to use nature as an engineering and manufacturing platform. And this is a paradigm shift. And what it means is that uh, we have a level of precision by which we check, we can create at the atomic level and build things from the ground up and create completely radical new solution. But also the big uh, consequence of this is that this can lead and will lead hopefully um, to a paradigm shift at, the, at the, almost at the civilization level because we are just about to go through a shift like the one we went through 10,000 years ago from being hunters and gatherers um, to become farmer. And we have the possibility of instead being hunters and gatherers uh, of resources, we can become farmer at the atomic level. And this would lead to a shift from an exploitative model to a generative model. And this would be the necessary change in the economic and industrial tissue that is needed to once we have decarbonized to make sure that we stay there. It's just like when you lose weight, um, it's not only about losing weight, but it's changing mm -hmm. your habits so that you keep the weight. And this is exactly the, the same. We need to decarbonize, but we also need to change the habits. And the habits is the economic and industrial tissue. And related to this is the quantum technology part, because as I was saying, uh, Nobody wants to invest into the science uh, uh, risk. And uh, if you talk to some quantum um, entrepreneur, they will tell you, look, we understand the science of quantum. It's now really an engineering problem. And humans have shown over centuries that they're fairly good at solving engineering problems. 
it's a matter of time that they're going to get there. And the moment we have quantum computing, then this goes back to the nature co-design. Then we have the computational instruments and power to really carry through this nature co-design revolution that is happening. And I think the combination of the two is going to give us a world that in 10, 20 years, we're not going to recognize from that point of view. Wow, that's a that's a big statement uh, that we are now going through the steps like becoming hunters and then turning into farmers. And I like this metaphor of we are farmers now on a, on, a, on an atom level. Uh, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, so the the outlook for you is what 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 do you think is what needs to happen that we are actually able to make use of all these developments and the deep tech wave that is coming? What is the, the mindset shift, uh, the ecosystem shift? What, what would you like to see in the next two, three, four, five years? What needs to happen that we're really able to, to capture that potential? There are multiple things. I think we need to continue to incentivize and continue the research and get more of these entrepreneur and PhD um, to get um, funded and operational and supported by an investor community which is capable to discern the potential of the different venture and support them. Uh, I think, and this is really, really important, um, we need existing corporate and I am more bullish about small and medium enterprises and the big one to really embrace these and not push back and ride a wave of innovation that is going to become more accessible to redo these economic and industrial tissue. Um, but we need also big corporate to be part of this and scale this, this change. I think there is a very important uh, dimension here that uh, we need to consider from the get-go, which is that we need to look at this holistically at the systemic level and not really uh, continue to embrace the reductionist model that we have had so far, which is very much embedded into the digital approach toward things. You know, you can break things down, you can containerize and, and you can create APIs and so on. You cannot do that when you're looking at it systematically and particularly when you're starting designing with nature. And I think we need to really, from the very get-go of this transition, we need, on the one side, we need to think, think about the second and the third order consequences. I was shocked when I learned that uh, the, the chemist Arrhenius uh, recognized the greenhouse effect. I think it was 1905 or even 1895. And it took us more than one century to take action on that. And we cannot afford to ignore the second and third order consequences of what we do. And that's why the shift from exploitative to generative is going to help a lot. But we really need to think through the second and third order consequences on the one side. And on the other side is that it's a very different world. And one of the things that, and they're all the best prerequisite for this transition to happen, but we really need to have the public and 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 uh, the the the, the community, let me put it this way, uh, to be part of this narrative and needs to be engaged because the worst thing that can happen is that if we get into a, an emotional discussion that is not motivated by the facts, um, but we, we need to engage people also emotionally in this trajectory to avoid that this is a rejection or there is a pushback that put us in a position not to be able to carry uh, what is an absolutely needed transformation. So I think this is, is a very, very important dimension from my side. And when you say rejection, do you mean that maybe the technologies itself are not accepted, that there's too much risk involved? Yes. Like all the discussion we have around AI, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, and this is a perfect good example where we went into that reductionist, we thought about the algorithm and we didn't think about what are the second and third order implication of that. And we need from the get-go to say, guys, this is or this is a, 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 a new direction that we're taking. Let's engage and let's discuss what can happen, what can happen. And there are very good examples where people have brought in the society and community to have this discussion. And usually you get out, if done in a good way, in a constructive way, you come out with a better outcome. Uh, it's not that it's, uh, it, it, it's just really, okay, I have to go through it, but you can really come out with a better outcome, but you need to engage in this dialogue. And many of the changes that we're talking about are going to impact areas that are really closely related to culture, even religion. Um, so you need to make sure that you basically reboot the tradition with innovation, but leveraging it, it's not that you set it aside is that how can I integrate it into this development? 
And, and who who is then maybe maybe final thing we should touch upon? Who is supposed to shape this development and moderate this discussion? Is this, is this government? Is this a societal problem? So who is going to do that? All of us. I think uh, it, it, it would be wrong to say companies should need to do it or government needs to do it. It's all of us. We all need to proactively engage without preconception, uh, being open to a dialogue, but really open to a dialogue, listening and uh, with the goal of making it better because we have one planet and this is basically how can we leverage the technology to contribute i'm not saying you know it's not the transhumanist world that technology is going to come and solve everything but it's part of the solution and we need to integrate it into the broader cultural background having an open mindset in order to move forward and hopefully save our planet i think this is a yes. wonderful statement for for ending this podcast so thank you massimo for all your insights and discussion today uh it was a pleasure talking to you again My pleasure. Thank you. Bye.